Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of Design EDU Today, the podcast series discussing topics concerning the state of interactive design education at institutions of higher learning. I am your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Today's guest is Joe Rinaldi. Joe is Happy Cog's president. He is a relationship manager with a background in design and a lifelong dedication to community development. His professional background spans interactive marketing, recruiting, freelance illustration, teaching, and UX consulting. Prior to joining Happy Cog, he partnered and consulted with clients in publishing, pharmaceutical, communications, financial services, insurance, retail and e-commerce, and chemical industries. At Happy Cog, Joe has negotiated multiple projects with Harvard University, MTV, Ben & Jerry's, Harvard Business School, and the Black Hills Energy, while partnering with Nintendo Americas, the Bill and Gates Melinda, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Kaplan Test Prep, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, Yale School of Management, the McGraw Hill Companies, and Trek Bicycle Company. A passionate Philadelphian and community architect, Joe co-founded Philomade, a professional organization dedicated to celebrating, inspiring, and cultivating creative brilliance in the Philadelphia community. Joe earned his BA in Leadership Studies at the University of Richmond's Jepson School and studied illustration at the Savannah College of Art and Design. In real life, Joe enjoys spending time with his family and when nobody is looking, comics. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate it. Um, just a quick question. What comics? <laughs> um, I have been it's reading a lot of the Marvel stuff that's coming out right now. So. Okay. I do dabble in the superhero comics, um, but I would say that the, the best thing I've read in the last five years is a, uh, a series called Lock and Key that I've been a passionate fan of. It wrapped up about a year or two ago, but I would heartily recommend it to anybody that's interested in the medium. Yeah, I'm always looking for um, the next The Max, um, Sam Keith. I just loved that mm. comic and mm -hmm. always want something that's just as good. <laughs> All right, so... Uh, <laughs> Let's actually get into some into the why you're actually here. <laughs> so um, before I begin, I, I wanted to let my listeners know that you were interviewed on the UX Intern podcast, and you went in depth about the hiring process at Happy Cog, something that I wanted to ask you about. <laughs> However, <laughs> instead of making you repeat yourself, and um, in the spirit of sharing, I'm going to put the link to that episode in the session notes and ask for everyone to listen to that episode. It also features Katie Dill of Airbnb covering their hiring process as well. Lots of great information in that episode that my listeners, you don't want to miss. All right. So before I get into my questions, can you talk a little bit about Happy Cog in regards to the type of work you take on beyond what's highlighted on the Happy Cog website? And the type of work you're asked to do frequently, if those two things aren't the same, what you do and what you're asked to do. Sure, sure. Um, so we handle projects all the way from initial research and definition, digital projects, um, all the way through implementation. Um, about 50% of our projects, we take all the way to the finish line and build it ourselves. So um, it might be uh, Drupal build, craft, Expression Engine, WordPress, um, but about 50% of our projects we don't take to the finish line. We might take that as far as uh, 
responsive templates and a style guide, and then hand those assets off to a client's internal dev team to implement themselves. Or they might have a third-party dev team they already work with that we're handing off to. So um, just depends on their internal development capabilities. But, but the majority of our projects start in research and go all the way through to the end of, of building it out. Um, and I think most times we are contacted for, for work in that vein. Um, you know, it's important to note, too, that we work across a lot of industries by design. That, that's our intent. So we work in e-commerce. We work with mission-driven nonprofits. We work with higher education partners. Um, that keeps us fresh. That ensures we're always tackling new design challenges. That makes you know, the case for us that if we tackle a, a higher ed project, it's not just informed by our higher ed experience. It's informed by you know, something that we might have experimented with in financial services, or it's informed by something we learned in travel and tourism. Um, so while we're very industry agnostic, I would say that what most of our products have in common is just a massive amount of content. Um, that could be the thousands of products on soccer.com or David's Bridal or Zappos, um, or it could be the, the mountain of content that Harvard University produces, or it could be uh, thought leadership that, that the Institute for New Economic Thinking is generating. So really complicated content challenges kind of sit at the core of what we do. Um, the, the couple of occasions where we're asked to do things that we don't typically do maybe falls into the category of, of who we are often compared to um, in terms of competition. We often compete against significantly larger companies. We're just about 20 people headquartered here in Philadelphia with some folks that work um, remotely in the extension of our team, but we routinely compete against 200, 300, 3,000 person agencies. And in those cases, we don't handle a lot of the stuff that a full service agency might offer, like interactive marketing strategy or really deep you know, search engine marketing. Um, there's elements that surround our work that we don't focus on, that we bring in strategic partners to address. So I think that's the one area where we're potentially asked to do things or, or thought of for projects that aren't a slam dunk fit for us. Yeah, that's, um, that's just really interesting about, and, and, and students, you should be thinking about this, is that Happy Cog made the conscious choice to not focus on an industry. So when they, and I never realized that looking mm -hmm. at your site and doing my research, I saw you did all these different things, but I didn't put a strategic thought behind that. Mm -hmm. So that, that's really interesting. Yeah, the, the tide definitely currently has turned towards hyper-specialization. And a lot of the folks that we, we know in the industry have really targeted a specific industry or niche or market that they want to go after. You know, we work exclusively with mission-driven nonprofits or, you know, government institutions. We work exclusively in e-commerce. We really swim against the, the trend there as best we can. Um, and, and we look for clients that see the value in that kind of breadth of perspective. Some clients want, you know, a partner that is invested fully in one industry. And I get that. Um, but I think the partners that we've been most successful with are looking for that broader experience and skill set and how it could apply to their particular, you know, redesign or new product or whatever it is they're looking for a partner to come in and help with. Well, diversity is good. Right? I think so. I think. <laughs> it's, it's a good way to make that your company mission. Yeah. All right. Um, since the UX intern podcast stole a little of my thunder, mm -hmm. I'm going to try a little different line of questioning. Mm -hmm. In the classroom, 
students kind of work in isolation, perpetuating the stereotype of a solo rock star designer. Uh, because of the complexities of digital design, design has become a team sport again. Mm. So I'd like to know the specifics of what it's like to work uh, at a to work at a digital agency as an interactive designer. Mm -hmm. What does that look like now? Sure, sure. I think you described it perfectly. It's a team sport. I think that um, you know the way that that looks now in, in a given project. Um, you're, if you're what we would term a designer here, you are most likely working with at least two other designers on the course of that project, um, maybe up to three other designers in the course of that project. Um, there's typically someone that inhabits a role of a lead designer. That's the person that really is, what distinguishes that person from the other roles is that they're the most embedded and entrenched in that client relationship. They, they really lead that client relationship alongside a development lead from our team and a project manager. The three of them really are the, the three-pronged assault that works directly with the clients. You know, our designers are as client-facing as our project managers are. Um, so that's, that's one focus for, for our design team. Or you might you know, kind of sit in a more supporting role where you are more often than not having some of your to-dos outlined for you by the lead designer um, you're providing design effort, but it might be the lead designer that's the the internal lens that some of those decisions get vetted through. Um, it's important to note too, though, in our case, that lead designer is a hands-on designer as well. You know, she's likely you know designing one module while the supporting designer is designing a second module, um, kind of concurrently. Um, but then within that, you know, we have our design director Michael Johnson, and and MJ has a really important day-to-day -day role in ensuring quality and pushing people and mentoring. So, you know, you're working in a peer-to-peer -peer basis with other designers. You have a lead designer or you are a lead designer and then you have our design director who may as well, who may often be the lead designer as well, who um, also has a role in that. And that's just the design team. Um, mm -hmm. You know, beyond that, you're absolutely working hand in, in glove with our front-end development team whose role really sits as much in the design phase as anything, um, in thinking through responsive states, interactions, and behaviors. Um, you know, I think that our designers have a digital focus, but our front-end developers are the ones who, as often, are saying, you know, this is one way that you could handle this in an interactive element, or this is a behavior that you could use here, or this is how you could have, you know, a state that we could employ here that, that adds to the depth of the experience. Um, and at the same time, if we're building it, or even if we're not building it, our back-end developers are really the stewards of the, the publishing environment's constraints. So if we know that we're building in Drupal, we know enough about Drupal and the way that Drupal handles content models and relationships to impose some of that Drupal logic on our design thinking. You know, mm -hmm. We want to be blue sky and we want to be ambitious and really be unfettered, but we also have to design something that's implementable, that lives harmoniously in you know whatever CMS it gets it gets implement, implemented into eventually so you know our designers have to be wide open to feedback and and direction from our back end developers who who you know ensure that we stay within the right sized box that 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 the system has to live within ultimately um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of moving pieces and that doesn't even take into account um, that the fact that clients can have <laughs> active or less active roles in that too um, I'm curious about two things uh, that you just mentioned. One, 
was it sounds like it's an inside out model. Like when you mentioned one designer is working on one module. Mm-hmm. So if, if you could expound on that, that would be great. And the second one, and I think the bigger one, the way you design, the way you described the front end developer mm-hmm. to me sounds like a designer. Mm-hmm. So that's a fair point. <laughs> I think, you know, we've, we've absolutely debated internally, you know, if, if, even calling our front-end developers is accurate anymore. If it would be more accurate to call our front-end developers front-end designers, um, I, I think ultimately that comes down to a, a person-by-person, um, skill set-by-skill set decision. So it's hard to make a blanket statement one way or the other. But um, those folks live in design just as much as they live in what you might consider, you know, code or programming um, as much as anybody. So I, I agree, it's a very, very blurry line. Um, in terms of an inside-out approach. Because we work with extremely large experiences, typically, I mean, that's what our big content sites lead to, our, our really large digital experiences. Um, we are not ever going to build every page of the site that we redesign. So um, when we redesign the Holocaust Memorial Museum, you know, that site alone has hundreds of thousands of URLs. It is the largest living repository of content about the Holocaust, as well as about um, current day global genocide. It is a mountain of information. So in that instance, we are not going to design every page in that experience. Our clients really have to be able to extend our design thinking. So we build systems. Mm-hmm. We build extensible systems that are, that are built of component parts. Um, I, don't think, I, I wouldn't say that we subscribe wholly to the concept of atomic design. Mm-hmm. I think that there are tremendous benefits to thinking of things in terms of atoms and molecules and, and building up from a really um, the smallest idea to the largest idea. But I think what's lost in a lot of atomic design thinking is the ability to look at full page compositions, to look at the overall site experience. I think that we're really careful to balance that kind of micro thinking um, against the overall system design and the overall experience. So we do think in terms of modules, we do think in terms of of elements at times, but we are also not losing sight of the fact that it's not as simple as designing 16 Lego pieces and then expecting all of those 16 pieces to snap together harmoniously because you have a set of Lego instructions. You know, there are bigger, broader decisions that fall in between the cracks of um, the, the, the modules that get built that have to be considered as well. So we do have an inside-out approach, but we also have um, kind of a, a high altitude down approach, and we kind of we, we kind of meet in the middle. Well, and just a, this is for the listeners. Um, the atomic design that we mentioned, um, you can go to Brad Frost, Google Brad Frost or atomic design, and and you'll find a lot about that that way of thinking. And you know, so as a follow up to to that is mm-hmm. that's my biggest when I'm teaching a beginning web design class, and by that I mean. I'm teaching them how to use HTML, CSS, maybe a, you know how to utilize a JavaScript plugin. I I keep wrestling with I I like the idea of that atomic design of like let's just design a interface, let's design a an, an interaction mm-hmm. and then plug them together because I think that's easier for the students to just like focus on that one thing. But then in the end, like you said, you get to this big conglomeration of things that just this Frankenstein Mm -hmm. that could potentially not, (laughs) not work. And that's something Mm -hmm. I always wrestle with is just what's the best way to kind of 
get my students into that. So no, I, I, I think it's a huge struggle. And I think when we have designers that are, that are starting out with us and maybe this is their first, you know, role after they, they graduate from school, it's their first, it's their first full-time job. Um, I think that's where some of the, the most important experiences gained in the first 12 months is thinking in terms of systems, but still, um, you know, being able to isolate the trees from the forest and make kind of specific decisions within a module and, and look at things extensively as well. Um, you know, it's, it's as easy, the best example is, you know, consistency across URL link styles. You know, mm -hmm. you might make a decision in one area and then you have to be careful to be consistent with that decision as it applies to, to other areas. So um, I think there's a lot of resources that we employ that, that act as a safety net to ensure those gaps are met. So we will build typically a kind of living, breathing digital style guide that will populate mm -hmm. as design decisions get made. But at the same time, we are much more likely to share our design thinking with the client as organized into a template or a page yeah. um, and a full composition rather than let's show them you know, a, a product module or let's show them a share module. All those parts add up to a whole. And I think that's where atomic design in a lot of ways can really, really break down. Um, I think that if you have an incredibly competent design partner in your client that has a team that understands things at that depth and level, it can be a really powerful way to drive the ideas forward. I think in my experience, atomic design is still only taking root on the agency side, mm -hmm. let alone have the clients really been able to, to follow up on it. Um, so I think sharing things atomically with clients can be a real miss. Um, I think there's a lot more value to it if your client happens to be a product company or a product and they think about and they live in their product in these micro interactions, in these small decisions, these discrete atoms every day, all day. If they think in those terms, and this approach is very kind of analogous to them, but if they don't think in those kinds of details, then you're really prescribing a methodology um, that might be good for you, but is really dense and hard for the client to understand. Um, uh, again, this is a follow-up question. <laughs> Jumping back a little bit, you mentioned. I mean, so we, I, I the that role of inter the, the role of designer and that role of front-end developer, um, and that intersection where they're crossing over. Um, what from the designers coming from a design school? Mm -hmm. What are they missing to be able to be that you know that unicorn that can do both? I mean, where do you see their deficiencies that you do need to hire a traditional front-end developer who's the deals with interactions, mm. mo animations, and HTML and, and CSS? Well, I think, I think it's hard to find any one person that's great at all of that stuff. And I think mm -hmm. even within what you might consider more traditional design capabilities, you know, I identify strengths within our team that focus on different areas, um, you know, we might have a designer who is much stronger in terms of thinking of systems, and we might have another designer that's much stronger in terms of thinking um, in terms of user experience and IA and some of those more um, attributes that are more traditionally associated with an information architect. And we might have uh, another designer who really thinks in terms of content outward. So. Person, part of it is a personal preference and personal mm -hmm. strengths lead you into certain areas. Um, you know, we might have a designer that is really capable of putting on 
a little bit more of a front end dev hat and think in terms of code and think in terms of behavior and interaction. Um, but I, I would say that there, there isn't a designer that I know that exists that is extraordinary at all those things. You know, if you're great at typography and you're fantastic at, you know, modeling content relationships and you're, you know, out of this world at, in terms of thinking of, of what JavaScript can, can make possible, uh, and I don't know that that person really exists, <laughs> you know, so that's where, that's where, you know, it's a team sport. So identifying um, this, is, this is this person's strength, this is this person's weakness, if we combine these people together, you get the best of both worlds. That's where that's where studios make sense, mm -hmm. and that's where I think um, you know. Even when you look at friends of mine that I know that that freelance, they still tend to aggregate a studio-like team um, when they yes. tackle big projects. So I think there's that 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 responsibility gets shared across a few really talented people, rather than you know ensuring that one person can do everything. Um, you've mentioned now like a lot about um, interactions and user experience and user research. Mm. What, what does that look like? What exactly does that entail at an agency like Happy Cog? Mm -hmm. um, so Erica Hall coined this phrase mm -hmm. and we adhere to it very closely, um, just enough research. Yeah. So you know, we don't over-prescribe what we're going to do in terms of the, the research phase. We call that phase of our project, project definition. Um, so one of the most important things that we do in that, I think, is consume everything that our clients have already done because um, typically we're, we're more often working with very mature brands or, or mm -hmm. very successful e-commerce experiences or, um, you know, .edu sites that have um, a lot of, of audiences and the stakes are really high. And these, these partners know themselves fairly well. Um, so we, we typically review as much of those insights as we can, and we do a little bit of a gap analysis. And when I say we review those insights, we'll look at you know, quantitative data, like their Google Analytics and other site analytics that we can consume and draw conclusions from. We'll look at you know, behaviors as they can be mapped through the experience. We'll look at what they've been able to study themselves or track themselves. Um, but all of that is for nothing if we don't really invest in qualitative conversation-based research. Um, I, I will be a proponent of this until you know I have three teeth left in my head but <laughs> you learn things talking to people that are irreplaceable that you wouldn't learn otherwise I think um, it's impossible to do just qualitative or just do quantitative you have to have an appetite for both but you have to have an appetite for both and we will talk to um, stakeholders within the client environment we will talk to users that that experience the site and, and know the site well or we'll you know talk to people that have never used it before and are getting exposed to it the first time, but um, that kind of conversation-based insight is incredibly important. And then, you know, honestly, when we talk to clients, we we beg them um, when sharing information with us to err on the side of ruling things in rather than ruling things out. Um, you know, they might have a marketing strategy from three years ago that they've since abandoned, but that that document might still have some really interesting insights and pertinent details that still apply that, you know, are assumed known by the client or, you know, isn't really documented somewhere. But, but we need to, you know, read that, consume that to add it to what we know. So um, we, we, we treat research as a pretty aggressive, um, full contact part of this team sport. 
Uh, and the designers have a really huge role in that. Our project managers have a really huge role in that. Our developers have a really big role in that. Um, everyone really gets involved in gaining kind of a, a comprehensive knowledge of this. But, but everything we do hinges on the, the inherent knowledge that we will never know our client's business as well as they do. So we don't build an approach that holds our, our clients at bay or keeps them at arm's distance. We build an approach that centers around what our clients know. We keep them meaningfully involved in everything we do. We have a very iterative process where we share you know, as many steps along the way as we can um, without overburdening the client or the project with too much feedback. There's an art and an alchemy to figuring out you know, exactly when you need feedback, what kind of feedback you need, what kind of artifact you can deliver to the client that's going to confront them the right way and drive the right feedback. But, um, you know, we don't want to do a year's worth of research where we can replace what our clients know. We want to know enough to do our work. We want to know enough to really um, drive the project forward. But we subscribe, uh, MJ, our design director, says this a lot, and I, I've kind of adopted it too. We subscribe to Einstein's idea of combinatory play. You know, it's really mixing these ideas together that gets the best results. So if we can mix what our clients know with what we know um, from, you know, 15 years of experience working across all of these industries where the stakes are highest and the scrutiny is the tightest, um, we'll get the best results. So it's, it's really a blended approach and it's very, very customized to what clients have when they come to the table. But I guess the most important thing to take away from it is that the balance between qualitative and quantitative and the balance between what our clients know and what we know. You know, just a, a quick observation on that. Um, you're, it, it, it's, it makes sense based on all your, you know, most of your clients are already existing clients looking to take their existing product, mm -hmm. uh, existing service, whatever that, whatever that looks like to the next level. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I would just assume then, like if your, your research would look a lot different if you're work, if you're doing it for a startup idea, absolutely, absolutely, that's going to have. A, there's not going to be existing information. Well, there might be because you got different models that maybe yeah. somebody else tried something similar. But I think that's going to look a lot different. You might do more landscape analysis and look at what else is out there and draw mm -hmm. conclusions from other existing experiences. And they might have, you know, a lot of really sound research that that backs up your thesis for this new project or, or product. So there's usually, there's usually thinking there for sure. But at the same time, I agree. I think that there's, so there's, there's pluses and minuses to both though. Um, you know, with, with an established client that's had an e-commerce experience for the past, you know, nine years and they have this institutional knowledge, there are things that those clients hold dear that they, all, they just hold dear because they always have, mm -hmm. or it's become this kind of institutional inertia around an idea or, or a strategy. And it's up to us to kick the dust off that and, and dispel them of this assumption or, or disprove this, this idea that they've been handcuffed by for some time. So you know, knowing what they know, our clients can drive things forward really rapidly. Knowing what they know too, though, you know, they may be dug in and, and really kind of fixed on an idea that we don't hold nearly as dear and we want to call that into question and then validate it. We don't want to assume that. Um, with a new product, you have greener pastures, bluer skies, less in front of you, but you also have less ammunition. So there, there's absolutely pluses and minuses to both, but they're very, very different. Yeah, thanks. Um, you covered, I'm going to uh, go on to a different subject, but you, sure. you covered the hiring process in the UX intern podcast, Yeah. but you didn't really cover how a student is going to get their foot in 
in the door mm-hmm. beyond the custom drafting of a cover letter. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you want to see in their portfolio if they manage to get your attention with a well-crafted cover letter? Sure, sure, sure. So I, I think, um, you know, once they've, they've gotten to that point and we're scrutinizing their work or we're looking at, we're trying to learn more about them, you know, so yeah, yeah assume they've opened the door and now we're at this point where we're, we're putting them under the magnifying glass. Um, you know, at, at a minimum level, there is an attention to detail that we're looking for that becomes immediately apparent. Um, so, you know, we're going to look at your, so let's say you have a digital portfolio, right? You've created your own website that showcases your work. It tells a little bit about yourself. Uh, you can bet your bottom dollar we're going to look, in that, look at that site in a couple of browsers. We're going to look at it on a couple of devices. I'm not just going to crack it open um, on the latest, greatest version of Chrome on my, my <laughs> you know, desktop and assume that this is going to make sense on uh, an Android phone or something like that. So, so if we're serious about somebody, we will scrutinize them to that level of detail. And you know, things can break down on small screens or things mm-hmm. can break down in, in those in-between screen sizes too. So you know, if we see that the, the, the labeling for this one image starts to interfere with the image below it and you know, maybe they didn't really consider what this um, thumbnail was going to look like at a mobile screen size, that jumps out at us. Um, if we see that the site takes a painful amount of time to load and they're making all these really ambitious creative decisions about interactions and animations and all these special effects, but they're sacrificing site performance, um, you know, that raises an eyebrow. I think we look at beyond that, it, it's, it's what you choose to show and how you choose to show it. And we read a lot into what they think is valuable. Um, you know, beyond just the website, I am immediately drawn to a designer when I sit down with them and they've brought their sketchbook. They've brought their, mm-hmm. you know, they want to show their work, um, not just the end result. They want to show the work that went into it, show their process. Um, and I don't, honestly, I don't care what the process is. I just want someone to be able to articulate the process that works for them. You know, I, I want to hear, you know, I always start with blank and then I, I typically take it to blank. And then, you know, most times I'll revise because I learned this. I, I, it can be anything. It really can be anything. And I think students' process is often informed by the assignments they're given. So it might even be that the process is kind of kooky based on, you know, the kind of projects that they got tasked with, too. But I'm super forgiving of that if they have a process. If they say, you know, the first thing I do is I brainstorm a bunch of ideas and I throw them down on paper and then I cut them out and I re whatever, whatever it is. As long as there's a process, I'm drawn to that. And as long as there's uh, a value on their part in shining a spotlight on the steps they took to get to the end result. And they can, and then they can articulate their thought process, you know, and because I liked it, or I was really drawn to this, or this looked better, or whatever, those are real buzzkills. Um, you know, when, when someone's making decisions based on aesthetics, and they're just kind of winging it, you know, mm-hmm. I, we, we are very clear in, in our preference to look for designers, not, de- not decorators. Yes. And designers are problem solvers. Mm-hmm. And if you have a graphic design output, then you've solved several problems to get there. I want to know what those problems were. I want to know what failed solutions you tried before you arrived at the right conclusion, what conclusions you drew from, from your results, and then how extensible those conclusions are. You know, that, that's, that's the biggest piece of it. I, I, we can't, 
I don't think I don't think anybody can teach someone to think in that way. Um, we try to dig up and surface. Does this person think that way? Does this person have that in them? And then if we can identify that, and they have a strong portfolio and you know references from their instructors or from freelance clients and a million other things that I can get into. But at, at its core, that's the part that I I don't think we can train someone to have. You're you're either born with that or you you accumulate that through your life and you you arrive at your first job with that. But I don't know many people that can you know learn to think that way. Um, I, well, okay. You know, I, I just realized we're running up on time. So I'm sure. going to have, have two questions and one's just an, actually more of an observation. And you mentioned that site performance is something that you look at mm-hmm. and I agree. And that's actually what I teach now is a, you know, I've, I make them do a performance budget, mm-hmm. but then I also think, then I, I, I get into this loop of, well, if I'm teaching them to focus on this this performance budget and this idea of, you know, this needs to be universal to everybody, they're not pushing the envelope of the medium. And isn't that what school's about is to be able to push the boundaries? Because you can reel that in, but it's really hard to for me to get students to cast out. So a student that casts out far, I can say, whoa, this is great. Mm-hmm. You really export this, but now let's think about performance. Mm-hmm. And it's like wondering what you think about that when I, when I, when I phrase it that sure, way. Sure. Well, I would say performance is just a constraint and there's always going to be constraints. So mm-hmm. whether the constraint is performance or something else, you, the, the most important skill I think you can, I'm saying too many things are the most important An important skill you can learn <laughs> is designing within constraints. You're going mm-hmm. to have constraints. A, a client is very rarely going to hand the whole thing over to you and say, tell me when you're done. You know, they're going to have constraints that are going to impose upon you. Performance is just one of them. Um, so, you know, I think I'm drawn to the idea that, that some educators will allow students to have just, you know, blue sky possibility and, and design. And I, I think you had mentioned this to me in the way that you approached it potentially. Um, mm-hmm. And then impose a performance budget afterwards. You know, here, explore, go crazy, take this as far as you want, get as adventurous as you want, you know, really, really, really push the limits to, to the end of the edge of, of the envelope. Um, but now that you've done that, here I'm imposing this performance budget upon you, and now you need to whittle down. Now you need to, you know, kill the thing you love. You need to, to, you know, trim down one thing and, and trade this thing off for that. You have to make some really, really hard decisions and arrive at something that you still feel is true to your central idea, but now can live within, you know, this much smaller container I'm giving to you. So I think that's, you know, one way to encourage both. Mm-hmm. But I, I think performance is just another constraint. Okay. All right. Well, um, the last question I have uh, comes to, and this is a theme now that I've been seeing from these podcasts and and things that I've read that I want to talk to you about, and you've mentioned it yourself. So you mentioned that being proactive as a designer is a huge bonus. Others have said this. So for you to actually like outright say, you know, this is advice, this is something that I see, um, are you seeing a lot of designers, young designers who aren't proactive that you have to like make this a statement? Um, so I, I don't know. Well, I don't know. I, I would say that it's not a matter maybe of being proactive. Mm-hmm. I would say, I would say that it's important just to realize that you could be the most talented person on the planet, but if, 
no one's ever met you or heard of you. You're going to live a pretty lonely existence <laughs> with your talent. Um, so I think there is a little bit of just getting out in front of it and owning the fact that, you know, you're, you're as good as your connections in some ways. And honestly, there are, there are designers who are well-connected, who are less talented than really talented designers who are poorly connected. And, you know, the connections and, and making those relationships a priority tends to bear fruit. I, it's just, it's the nature of, of working. You know, it's not even a matter of, of design or our industry. That's, that's just the nature of working. That's why something as, as god-awful as LinkedIn exists, um, just to, to manage those relationships, because it's, it's core to, to working. Um, so I think, you know, being proactive, I think putting it that way puts too much of a pejorative on it, and it makes it sound like students are by default reactive. I would say that students by default emerge from school with a very limited community that they're plugged into. You know, it's their mm -hmm. classmates, it's the people that they started to interact with on Twitter. There's a little bit of, a, of an ecosystem they're building around themselves and at the undergrad level. Um, but I think once, you, once you're on your own and once you're, you're out in the wilderness, um, you know, it really is up to you to kind of cultivate your network and, and build relationships and make inroads into you know, opportunities. So um, you know, whether that's attending a conference or it's just being um, a, a valuable member of a conversation on Twitter or it's sharing your thoughts in a blog post and, and people reacting to it or vice versa, I think that there's, there's never been easier ways yeah. for the bashful um, in real life to introduce themselves more boldly online. Um, and I think it's, it's up to everyone to really take advantage of it, not just students. But students just have the, you know, by the fact of, of their age, they just haven't had the life experience to accumulate connections like a snowball. Um, um, and you have to start that ball rolling downhill. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of, it's not that hard. The, no, this, yeah. this, this industry is Agreed. really open to helping people. <laughs> I, I would challenge any recent college grad who, who graduated from the business school at Liberal, Liberal Arts University XYZ to contact a CEO of a company that you really admire and see what kind of response you get. And then compare that to a young designer just finishing the school, reaching out to you know, an agency owner or, or a digital shop owner and seeing what response they get. It is, it is a night and day. I've been on both <laughs> sides of that coin. It is a yeah. night and day comparison. It is, this is a wildly open and, and, uh, and really kind of pleasant and, and uh, welcoming industry by comparison. It's, that's the, the result of several things, but I, I, yeah. can, I can assure you that that is the case. So um, we're we're running out of time. So Joe, before I let you go, is there anything you are working on that you would like to share, or something you want to promote? Sure, sure. So I would say, you know, um, knowing that this is going to go live sometime in October. At this point, um, our work on Philly.com is well underway, and we've been documenting that as we go. We are partnered in this case with my good friend Dan Mall and his agency, Super Friendly. So we've kind of merged our two teams together in pursuit of this project. So that's underway, and some of that work is coming to life at this point. Um, and this past summer, we'll have seen the launch of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. That's inet.economics.org. It is a gorgeous website um, that 
uh, we, we built to really drive a dialogue around emerging economic theory. We are also proud probably at this point to see our work go live with Papa John's as well as Coldwell Banker. Um, so You've been busy. Cold, yeah, so Coldwell Banker Homes <laughs> is going live by this point. Um, Lagunitas Beer is live at this point. Some work for a couple other clients uh, is probably live. And if it's October, we are probably up to our eyeballs in our schedule for an event apart as well as yeah. our digital project manager summit um, is occurring in Philadelphia this month as well. So in the fall, we see a big uptick in the, the programming that we put out there. So um, yeah. I think that's all the news fit to print yeah. if I'm imagining us in October. Yeah. I'm going to steal just another minute of your time because I'm just going to mention this is for educators and this is for students. Attend an event apart. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it is really beneficial um, because there's so much we don't know as educators, that the way event apart is designed, it's single track. So you see all of the speakers. So you're not like making this difficult decision, like which one do I go to? Mm -hmm. I like both. And mm -hmm. you know, you don't find out later that you made the wrong decision. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but again, it just like opens up your world to things like, Oh, wow, I didn't think of that. Oh, I, I wasn't thinking of this. And I, I think it's really worth the investment to go. So if you ever see one in your, your neighborhood to cut down on the travel expenses, it's, it's definitely worth the value. Thank so, you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're in eight cities typically every year. You shouldn't be at, at worst a short, you know, plane ride away from, from one of these events. So, um, yeah, I, I, we, we see ourselves as a company of educators just because we come from an event apart and a list apart and Jeffrey's book on web standards and a variety of other things. So I hope that an event like an event apart feels pitched towards educators in some way just because it's it's a bunch of educators you know, pushing the content out there. Yeah. Oh, and book apart. I didn't even mention book apart. Um, again, great books for the students and for listeners. It's they're just they're great, easy reads. They take maybe three hours to sit down and read one from cover to cover. And there, there's not a single one that wasn't amazing and just didn't give me <laughs> some new insights. Um, and they were, and one of them's even got an, um, an audible book for, yeah. um, you're my favorite, what are you, um, what's, uh, Mike Montero's book? You're my favorite <laughs> client. You're my favorite client. Mm -hmm. Oh no. The one he's got on audible. Oh, um, is it design as a job? <laughs> yeah, design as a job. Yep. So if you're, you know, lazy and don't want to read, <laughs> you can listen to uh, some uh, a book of parts. Yeah. All right. So, um, and a list part as well. Your your online magazine. Uh, magazine. Yep. Is, is the best way to put it. So that's all part of the Happy Cog family. It is so, indeed. Yeah. yeah so we're we're fortunate to be a part of that and sit at the intersection of all those conversations. There's a lot of great people outside of Happy Cog that contribute to all of those things, um, but we're really fortunate here that we get to sit at where all those things overlap and get exposed to that amazing conversation. So yeah, I mean, if you're interested in any one of those mediums, um, there, there's lots of ways to catch up on what we and our friends and colleagues are discussing. So we, we welcome people into that conversation as best we can. Yes. Um, very open-faced um, Happy Cog is. So perfect. That's, so, that's our plan. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, that's all the time we have uh, for today on episode 10 of Design EDU. Uh, I want to thank today's guest, uh, Joe Rinaldi of Happy Cog, for being so generous with his time. Uh, 
I want to thank the audience for listening, and I want to thank the Design EDU Today hosting sponsor DigitalOcean and CDN sponsor Fastly for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. Finally, I want to thank the AIGA and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. If you want to discover more about the Design EDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit us on the web at designedu.today. You can also follow us on Twitter at designedu today, like our Facebook page, or subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes store. Thank you for listening to Design EDU Today.